morning, and uh, welcome to River Glen, uh, everybody. Uh, good to be together uh, with you. Those of you uh, in Pewaukee, uh, welcome. Those of you joining us online, wherever you might be located, we're just delighted to uh, have you with us. Good to be together uh, with you. I'm really excited about this weekend. This is a uh, baptism uh, weekend, and uh, we have already baptized 17 people uh, this weekend, and uh, we're just really excited. Uh, we've got more people that have already scheduled to get baptized uh, today at, at both locations, and I'm excited too because maybe for some of you, uh, this is new, and uh, you've not seen a, a baptism by uh, immersion, and I'm just really glad that you're here to experience it, and uh, wouldn't it be great if uh, some of you who came today not planning on getting uh, baptized would just spontaneously make that decision, and uh, we've got everything that you need. Uh, we're ready uh, for you to, to do that. We'd love to help you uh, do that. Baptism is for everyone. Well, it's uh, week number two. We're in this series called This Is For Everyone. And you know what? This isn't just the title of a series. This is a core value that we share as a church because uh, no matter how old you might be or young or physically strong or physically challenged, no matter what failures or mistakes uh, you have made, doesn't even matter what football team you cheer for, all right? Uh, this is for everyone. This church is for everyone. Christmas is for everyone. I love this verse. Kind of drives this series, kind of our theme verse. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be uh, saved. And so here's what I want to do today. Today I want to use this table right here to illustrate this verse, to illustrate this core value. You probably spent some time around one of these over Thanksgiving. You're probably going to spend some uh, more time around uh, one of these uh, at, at Christmas. The uh, dinner table is really the heart of of the, of the home. The table represents family. But, you know, nowadays, uh, it, it seems that in, in many homes, the TV has replaced the uh, dinner table as the place where the family gathers. And I'm not against TV. I'm not saying throw away your TV. But I think we, I think we lose something when we minimize the amount of time that we spend together around uh, the dinner table, eating and just sharing our lives together. More than ever, people are eating their meals on the go in their vehicle. People are eating later at night after everybody gets home from work and practice and activities. Consequently, Americans spend less and less time around the uh, dinner table. We used to spend about 90 minutes as a, as a family in the evenings around the dinner table. Nowadays, it's more like an average of about 12 minutes around the dinner table uh, together. But researchers have discovered that a whole bunch of benefits happen in families when we spend more time around the uh, dinner table. Uh, kids do better in school. They get better grades. Kids have healthier self-esteem. We just eat healthier. And a whole bunch of other uh, benefits. I could go on and on because the table is really the heart of the home. The table represents the family. And Christmas is all about family. The Christmas story is all about God inviting you and me to his table. Christmas is, is about God doing everything necessary so that you and I can pull up a seat to his table. Because you know what? That's what we lost in the beginning. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, they sat with God. And they uh, talked with God. And they walked with God. And they enjoyed a personal relationship with God. But they lost their seat at the table. And really all of us lost our, our seat at the table. Sin took it away from us. But Christmas, through Christmas, God restores what was lost so that we can once again uh, sit at the Christmas 
table. So today, here's what I want to do. I want to share with you a story from the Bible about a table. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, now sometimes when people are new at a church, they feel a little intimidated by Bible stories. You feel like, well, I must be the only one here who doesn't know this story. Well, that's not the case with this story. Few people know this story. I grew up attending church. I went to a Christian college. I don't remember ever hearing this story uh, taught, but it's it's, it's a great story with a beautiful truth. Now, it may not seem very Christmassy, if that's even a, a word, but, but hang with me. I'm telling you, this story has Christmas all over it. Before I tell you the story, it probably would help to introduce the characters. In verse 1, we meet three characters. It says, one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. And so we meet these three characters. First of all, Saul. Maybe that name sounds familiar to you. Saul was the first king of Israel. And Saul's uh, son is Jonathan. And Jonathan's best friend is named David. But deep conflict develops because Saul does not like David. Saul is, is, is thinking about uh, Jonathan becoming the next king. He wants, to, he wants his, his son to sit on the throne. He wants his grandson to sit on the throne. Saul's thinking dynasty, and it could have happened if he would have obeyed God, but Saul insisted on doing things his own way. And one day, God had a conversation that had to be very difficult for, for Saul. God says to him, I'm tearing the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to somebody else because they'll be a better king than, than you. And guess who God chooses to succeed Saul? David. And, and from that moment on, God begins to just bless David in amazing ways. David defeats this tall guy named Goliath, David gets promoted in the military. David grows as a leader, but Saul's jealousy of David also grows to the point where Saul tries to kill David, but he fails because you can't keep God's man down. So now you're kind of familiar with the conflict between David and Saul, but the conflict gets even worse because David becomes best friend with Jonathan, which had to be really awkward because Saul wants Jonathan to be the king, and God has made it clear that David is going to become the king, and Jonathan sides with David. Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan says, David, I, I can see that God's hand is, is on your life, and uh, I want you to become the king. I don't want to become the king. I trust that God will take care of, of me, but Saul insists on Jonathan becoming the king, and Saul begins to lose his mind, and has fits of rage and anger toward David and and Jonathan. But the friendship between Jonathan and David survives. And Jonathan begins to realize where where this is probably going. And that he is probably not long for this world. And so uh, one day he has a conversation with David. He says to David, promise me one day when you become the king, I know my dad's crazy, I know my dad's trying to kill you, but one day when you become the king, I want, I want you to promise you'll look after my family. I, I, want, I want you to be a good king and, and look after my family. And it becomes an emotional moment. David is, is choked up. And he says, of course I'll take care of your family. Promise me? I promise you. But from that moment on, uh, we don't know if David, if David and Jonathan ever saw each other again. David lives on the run because Saul chases him. D- David is on the run for his life. He goes from cave to cave for about 10 years. Eventually, Jonathan and Saul died, and that brings, up, brings us up to speed many years later to verse 1, where David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive, anyone to whom I can show kindness 
for Jonathan's sake. See, he's remembering that promise that he made many years ago to Jonathan. And so he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. Look at this. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makur, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makur's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep, in deep uh, respect. And so now we're introduced to the fourth character. And uh, he is uh, uh, Jonathan's son, and his name is Mephibosheth who David never knew. And, uh, you know, you're like, these guys are best friends. How does David not know about Jonathan's son? Well, remember, David lived on the run for 10 years, going from cave to cave. And uh, David couldn't get to Instagram when Jonathan posted the picture from the, uh, from the hospital. So he had no way of knowing about uh, uh, his existence. And his name was Mephibosheth. David said, greetings, uh, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. I intend to show you God's kindness uh, to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me. Look at this. Here it is. At the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who, who, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. From that moment on, he ate regularly at the king's table. And I know this may not seem like a Christmas story. There's no mention of the wise men or the shepherds. But you know what? This is exactly what we need to understand in order to go into the Christmas season with the right frame of mind. And here's why, because you and I are Mephibosheth. You and I are Mephibosheth. Uh, what do I mean? Well, I want to show you, I want to share with you five reasons why you and I are like Mephibosheth. Here's number one. For Mephibosheth, life had not gone according to plan. The reason Christmas has power and meaning in our lives is because like Mephibosheth, our, our lives have not gone as planned. Maybe you had, you know, your life planned out, you know, you had this thing charted out, 20s, 30s, 40s. You're going to get married, you're going to have uh, children, you're going to have a successful career as a a teacher or an engineer or whatever uh, it might be. But we look down one day and we ask the question, when did I give up on my dreams? Or we had this sense of what marriage was going to look like and divorce was not in that picture that we had painted or the difficulty of uh, losing a, a parent when you weren't on speaking terms with them 
at that time. Or maybe everything was going good and you went to the doctor and you got a medical report that you did not expect. Life does not go. Life doesn't always go as, as planned. I mean, it's fine to plan. It's good to plan. But I came across this quote from a boxer named uh, Mike Tyson. And I don't get to quote Mike Tyson uh, very often in church. And so I'm going to do that today. I, I think he got this one right. Hey, take a look at what Mike Tyson had to say. It's fine to make a plan. Everyone has a plan. But then you get punched in the mouth. It's true, isn't it? How do you respond when life savagely punches you in the jaw? Well, life didn't go as planned for Mephibosheth. Think about this. He's five years old. He's just five years old when his dad died. Can you imagine? Some of you can. Some of you lost a parent at a young age, and life got real cruel and real difficult. Five years old, and his dad died, and his grandfather died the same day. And this is where it gets really interesting, because his grandfather was Saul. And so for Mephibosheth, uh, five years old, his life changes immediately. I would imagine as a, as a five-year-old prince, second in line to become king, he lived a very privileged and uh, regimented life, you know, archery at, at, at two o'clock, horseback riding at three, learning ancient hieroglyphics with a tutor at uh, four o'clock. But when Jonathan and Saul died, everything changed instantly because Jonathan's not going to become the king. Mephibosheth is not going to become the king. And they immediately crowned David as the next king. And so Mephibosheth didn't just lose his dad and his uh, granddad. He lost his home and all the privileges that go with living in the palace as the uh, prince. Doesn't say anything about his mom. We don't know if his mom was alive or not. But life did not go according to plan for Mephibosheth. Here's a second reason why we are like Mephibosheth. People he trusted let him down. Are there people in your life that you trusted to be there and they weren't there? You know, they said they would be faithful to you and they betrayed you. They walked out on you. They said, till death do us part, but what they really meant was till death uh, do us part, or till someone younger and hotter uh, comes along or until I don't feel like keeping my promise to you. We trusted people. We trusted our parents to stay married. We trusted somebody that we respected to not abuse us. We trusted people who let us down. And you know what? This happened to Mephibosheth. His, his dad, he didn't have a dad anymore, but he had a nanny. Scripture describes her as a nurse, and it gives us a few details. Here, here, here's what happened. He's five years old. On, on the day his dad died, it's his Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. And then it tells us how he got crippled. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. Here's what happened. When Jonathan and Saul died, all the household staff at the palace, they panicked. And the reason they panicked is because they thought... They were going to get rounded up and killed next by the new regime because back in the, uh, in the ancient world, when the royal family line changed, they would kill off the old royal family so that they wouldn't pose a threat to the new family. And so everybody at the, at the uh, palace freaks out, and the, and the nanny, the nurse, grabs five-year-old Mephibosheth, and she starts running but at some point, she uh, drops him. Now, I don't know the full circumstances, but think about it. The, the, the nurse carries Mephibosheth. It was her job 
to take care of him, but maybe she's like, you know, he's slowing me down. I don't have a job anymore. And my connection to him, it actually hurts me because he's part of the old royal family. Now, I know it doesn't say that she did this overtly or intentionally. It just says she dropped him. But she not only dropped him and let him fall, the fall was bad enough that it broke his back or it broke both legs. I mean, you've got you've to fall with some force for that to happen to a five-year-old. Again, I don't know the circumstances. And, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe it was a total accident. And one day I'm going to get to heaven and this uh, nurse is going to give me a dirty look because of the way I talked about her today in, in church. But all I know, she was supposed to take care of him. Uh, her, her face w- was the only loving face he knew in his life, and she let him down, and he got hurt badly and permanently. But the other side of, of the coin is that we've all trusted people that have let us down, and we have all let down other people who have trusted us. I mean, I've done things that have let down other people. I've done things that have let down my kids. I've not lived out my faith in ways that I, that I should have that have hurt the name of, of, of Jesus. So we've all fallen, and we've all let other people fall. Now, here's where it gets real serious. The third reason we're like Mephibosheth, he was in danger, and he had no way to run. Many years go by, Mephibosheth, he's now in his 20s, or maybe he's in his 30s. King David has worked long and hard to expand his kingdom, but one day he, he wakes up, and he remembers that promise he made many years ago to Jonathan. David inquires and finds out about Mephibosheth, and then he sends for him. Mephibosheth lived in Lodabar, which means no pasture. There's like no food. It's desolate. It's remote. And they go to Lodabar, pick him up, and they bring him to the palace. And everybody assumes, including Mephibosheth, that he is going to be executed. Mephibosheth is in danger, and he has no way to run. And, and that's why the first thing David says to him is, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Maybe that sounds familiar. Think about it. David is from Bethlehem, and he says, don't be afraid. The exact same words the angel spoke to Mary that first Christmas. Isn't it amazing how this story that we're looking at today echoes the Christmas story? Mephibosheth was in great danger, and he had nowhere to run, but he finds mercy at the hands of a good king. And you know what? We're in danger too. We're all in danger because we all fall short. We're all sinners, and we're all moving closer to the day that, that we die. Every day, we, we, we move closer to the day we die from the moment of our birth. Merry Christmas, everybody. Isn't that great news? You're glad to hear that? Today, you're going to die. I'm going to die. Some of you are like, uh, not me. I use essential oils. Well, you're going to die smelling better than the rest of us. Some of you say, no, I eat tofu, I eat kale. Well, you'll die with a bad taste in your mouth, but you're going to die. We're all going to die. And here's what's going to happen when we die. Our soul leaves our body. See, you've got a body, but you're not a body. You're a soul. And when you die, your soul is going to go and stand before God for judgment. And, And according to Jesus, there's two options at the judgment, heaven and hell. And why do we listen to Jesus? Well, I mean, there's a lot of other people that teach about the afterlife. There's a lot of other prophets, plain review prophets, that have written books about the afterlife. Here's why I listen to, to Jesus, because only Jesus died and then came back to life. I know I'm in danger, and I need some help. And I listen to Jesus, because he's the only one who died and rose again. That's why I listen to him and, and, and follow him. We're all in danger like Mephibosheth, was in great danger, 
but he found mercy. And here's why. There was a good king who wanted to show him kindness. David didn't have to. The normal thing to do in the ancient world would be to eliminate the old royal family. But King David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. And Christmas is about God's kindness to us. When we stand before God for for judgment, the the difference between heaven and hell is not, did you do more good than, than bad? It's not, did you sin? I mean, because we've, we've all sinned. So if we die physically, dead spiritually, we remain lost perpetually. The Bible calls this hell. It's a Christless eternity. But that's not what God wants for you because he's a good king and he wants to show you kindness. And that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is God intruding into this world to show kindness to us. I like the way that uh, N.T. Wright uh, puts it. He says, Christmas is not another reminder that the world is, is uh, really quite a nice old place. You know, many of the songs would, would say that. It reminds us that the world is a shockingly bad old place where wickedness flourishes unchecked, where children are murdered, where civilized countries make a lot of money by selling weapons to uncivilized ones so that they can blow each other apart. Christmas is God lighting a candle. And you don't light a candle in the room that's already full of sunlight. You light a candle in the room that's so murky that the candle, when lit, reveals just how bad things really are. The light shines in the darkness, says St. John, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christmas is about God's kindness. Christmas is a rescue mission. It's God's way of saving us from a life that is lost and eternity that is nothing but full of, of agony, the kindness of a king. That's Christmas. I mean, think of Mephibosheth. He comes to David, and he gets, maybe he gets on his knees, or, or maybe he's lying down. Remember, he's, he's got legs that are, that are lame. He's, he's crippled, and he is afraid that he's going to be executed. And David says, I'm not going to execute you. I brought you here so that I can show you kindness because I made a promise to your, to your uh, uh, dad. I'm going to show you kindness, not because you earned it, but because I made a promise to your uh, father, and I'm going to treat you as one of my uh, children. And that brings us to the final reason that you and I are like Mephibosheth. It's because he was given a seat at the royal table. David says, you're not going to be executed. I brought you here because I want to uh, adopt you. I want to bless you. In fact, for the rest of your life, if, if you're willing, I want you to live in Jerusalem. We'll make room for you at the palace. You can have your old room back if you want it. And from now on, you know, here at my table, here's my decree. Every time that food is served, this seat right here is going to be for Mephibosheth. I'm going to sit over here, and uh, my other sons and daughters are going to sit around here, and the room's going to be full. And, uh, but this seat belongs to Mephibosheth. And so they, uh, they help him get to his seat. You know, they didn't have wheelchairs back then. Maybe they held him by his elbows. I don't know, maybe, maybe he had some leg uh, brackets and he manages somehow to get over to his seat and they push the seat in, they put the napkin on his lap and he looks around and he realizes, I've got a place where I belong. I've got a place where people want me around. I've got a, a king who smiles at me and asks me how my day is. I've got a king who loved my dad, a king who is showing uh, kindness and love to me. He used to live in Lodabar, means no pasture. The animals had no food. And now he's in Jerusalem sitting at the royal table. 
with good food and real relationships and a blessed life. That's Christmas. God wanting you to have this with him. And Christmas shows us the lengths that God will go to in order for you to have this. What did it take for us to get a seat at the, at the Christmas table? It took God's son being born into a stable. That's Christmas. God's son being born in a barn. That's Christmas. God's son being born uh, surrounded by animals and filth and then living a life where he was doubted and mocked and hated and, and dying a death on a cross surrounded by criminals, rising on the third day, ascending to heaven, where he sends his Holy Spirit to go and search for you. Not because he's mad at you, but because he wants to bless you. He's got good plans for you. He wants to make you his, his son, his daughter. He wants you to sit at, at his table. You say, well, I, didn't do, I don't deserve it. I didn't do anything. Well, that's exactly the point of the story. David blesses Mephibosheth, for the sake of Jonathan. And God wants to bless you and adopt you, and he wants you to feast at his table for the sake of Jesus. That's Christmas. I think my favorite part of the story is just picturing Mephibosheth sitting at this table and realizing that, I mean, he's been an outcast all of his life because of his legs, but when he's, when he's at the table, he realizes, when I'm at the table, nobody can see my legs. I'm just like everybody else. I'm just one of, the, one of the sons of the king. My life got shattered at age five, but now I'm sitting at the royal table. So how do you claim your seat at the uh, royal table, at God's table? How do you claim your seat? Two ways, two simple ways. Don't miss this. You be humble, and then number two, you sit down. What does that mean? Well, first of all, be humble. Here's what it means. It means you stop pretending that you have earned your seat. Do you know how many people are going to be in heaven because they earned it? Zero. Yeah. And uh, uh, if you insist on doing it your way and earning your way, you're going to miss out and have nobody to blame but yourself. The only way to heaven is to humbly trust Jesus, just like Mephibosheth was humble. Be humble and then sit down. What does it mean to sit down? You've got to be willing to accept an invitation. Mephibosheth could have just said, well, I'm just going to leave and I'm going to go back to Lodabar. But he chose to take a seat, to sit down and claim the promises that David made to him. Look at what Jesus said about this. He said, as surely as my father has given me my kingdom, so I give you the right to eat and drink at my table in that kingdom. How about you? Have you chosen to accept this invitation from Jesus? When we accept this invitation, here's what happens. We get our name put on a place setting. And Jesus promises to prepare a place for you in heaven. And then he wants you to live your life with joy and peace and purpose as an ambassador who goes out and invites other people to come and, and sit at God's table. That's why God leaves us here. That's why he doesn't immediately take us to heaven because he commissions us to go and invite more people to come and, and sit at his table. You see, we can add leaves to this table as a church we want to add leaves to this table and invite more and more people to come and uh, experience it. That's why we launched the Pewaukee campus a couple months ago, so more people can come and sit at God's table. That's why we're having nine identical Christmas candlelight services, so that more people can come and experience and sit at God's table. We want the world to know how great it is 
to experience our great God. That's Christmas. And so here's my question for you. Have you accepted God's invitation? Have you chosen to humbly sit down at his table? And uh, I want to give you an opportunity uh, to do that today. The scripture says that if you believe in your heart, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that he raised from the dead, you will, be, you will be saved. And so I want to invite everyone. I've got this in a statement on the screen here. And uh, I want to invite everyone to, to say this out loud uh, together. Now, if you don't believe it, don't say it. But this is for everyone. And so I want to invite everyone to stand. So uh, to, uh, to uh, say this. So I want to invite you. Would you please stand uh, with me? And uh, I'm going to say a line. And then I want you to repeat it after me, okay? So here we go. I believe, I believe. that Jesus died for my sin. And raised from the dead. And I accept him as my Lord and Savior. Oh, those are great words. Those are awesome words. Greatest words that you and I can speak. And for everyone who speaks those words and believes those words, here's what Jesus says. I want you to express your faith through baptism. Your next step is baptism. Baptism is a beautiful act of obedience where you picture with your life what Jesus did with his life. Here's Jesus on the cross. Here he is buried in a tomb. And then three days later, he raises up back to life. Here's your life. And here you are getting baptized, getting, going under the water. And then you come up out of the water to live a new life. And you say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to sit at God's table. I'm going to say a prayer. And then I want you to stay standing during this song. And those of you who came today, both campuses, if you came today planning to get baptized, just make your way to an aisle. Go to the lobby. We've got a table in the middle with everything that you need and a group of people that will help you begin the process. And uh, we'll baptize you a little bit later in the service. Now, if you came today and you want to get baptized, you'd like to get baptized, but you didn't, you didn't plan on it, good news. This is for everybody. There's more room at the table. we got everything that you need, both campuses. We've got cool t-shirts, and uh, you get to keep those. We've got all the clothes, all the towels. We've got private changing areas. We've got everything that you need. We'd love to, we'd love to baptize you today. The only thing we need you to do is to, to have the courage to make your way to an aisle during this song and head to the lobby, go to the table, and we've got a group of people that will welcome you, and they'll help you begin the process, and uh, we'll baptize you in just a, just a few moments. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for being a great king and showing kindness to us. Thank you for making it possible for everyone to sit down at your table. And God, thank you for so many people responding this weekend. And that we're never too old and it's never too late. But God, I know we have people here who have come to believe in Jesus, who have come to faith in Jesus, but have yet to take the step of baptism. God, give them, give them a nudge. Give them Give them that courage today. Move in their lives to take this, this important step and say yes to this command that Jesus gave to every person who decides to follow him. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.